0: Here is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome to today's edition of the broadcast. I am Dr. David DeRose. We're talking today about a topic that reaches across Indian country and beyond. And we're going to come at it from a very interesting angle. It comes through the eyes of a medical student, a third year medical student by the name of Michael Stocker. Michael, it's great to have you as a guest on the show today.
2: Thanks for having me on, David.
1: Michael, you have a very interesting background, and you and I really are just getting acquainted. We uh, met, some people would say, uh, it was just a chance encounter. Other people would say the creator designed that meeting, whatever terminology you want to use. But uh, we're relatively new acquaintances, and I've learned that you have a deep passion for helping indigenous peoples. You've done that in a number of places in the world and uh, you've done it uh, in Indian country, so we want to talk some about your story. Before we do that, a little bit about you right now. Tell us where you're at and uh, what's going on in your life.
2: Thanks, David. So I'm a third-year medical student at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. I'm also completing a Master of Public Health in-, in concurrence with that degree. Currently located in Baton Rouge at Our Lady of the Lake Hospital, completing a clerkship, so I'm doing all my clinical education here in Baton Rouge.
1: This is uh, exciting, and uh, it's exciting to me because many of my regular listeners know I also have a master's degree in public health. For those who are not really familiar with that degree, it's pretty much the entry-level professional degree in the public health field. And public health has both gotten a lot of positive attention and, dare I say, uh, negative attention, Lately, uh, as we've been dealing with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, some people are just excited about what public health has been bringing to the table. And I hear other people, uh, uh, well, a lot of people in lay circles saying, well, how come the public health professionals can't get their act together? What is it like to be studying public health as a medical student in the year 2020?
2: Well, it's a really interesting time to be studying public health. I think uh, in the current crisis with COVID-19, having the background in epidemiology all the way up to communications in public health and understanding how to send a clear message and track a pandemic. Uh, it's made it a little bit more understandable for me uh, and, and a little bit easier to track along with what's really going on around us.
1: Great, great. Well, this is not the main focus of the show. For some of you who thought we were going to launch into another COVID-19 discussion, that's not ultimately where we're headed, but we may pick up uh, you know, some insights along the way. Michael, you are at one of the large uh, medical centers in our country. You're actually, uh, like I said earlier, a third-year medical student. Tell us a little bit about where you're studying.
2: So Our Lady of the Lake in Baton Rouge, I believe it's the largest hospital in the state. I'm currently on my surgery rotation, so I'm going through all the general surgery cases, everything from gallbladder surgeries to colon surgeries uh, with large intestines, excuse me, And having a great time with it, getting to learn how to work with my hands in medicine after working more with uh, medications and and long-term treatment in internal medicine last month. So uh, it's definitely a different way to look at medicine than it was in the classroom. And I I can say wholeheartedly I'm excited to be in the clinical realm and and out of the classroom, out of the books so much.
1: Now, the traditional medical school curriculum is two years pretty much in the classroom learning the so-called basic sciences, And then two years of clinical experience, is that pretty much how Louisiana State University's program is structured? Absolutely. You're exactly right. Okay. So getting that hands-on experience, working really in the hospital much of the time, right?
2: Absolutely. We're right alongside with the clinical teams. A lot of the programs are resident-run, so they'll be taking the lead. We'll see the patients with the residents or before them, bring the uh, patient's issues up and, and voice any of our concerns from our experience in the basic sciences and then watch the clinical thought process go through the resident to the attending and start putting those pieces together ourselves along with the whole team.
1: Now, some people, as they pursue a medical education, it's pretty much a straight shot. I'll give you an example. My wife, who's also a physician, she tells me, and I find this hard to believe. I don't doubt him. I'm just saying I don't meet too many people like this, but she said when she was five years old, she knew that she was going to be a doctor, and... She actually came from a poorer family. She didn't know even where she'd have the means to go to college. And uh, the Creator really, you would say, miraculously brought her through college into medical school. Most people don't have an experience like that. I mean, I was probably a typical college student in that I started college, not really sure what I was heading to do and uh, felt that direction toward medicine came during my college years. Other people... They finish uh, college education. They're out in the workforce doing something else or just seeking where that special place is for them. Tell us a bit about your story, Michael. How did you end up in medical school?
2: So I fit into the last category. They call us non traditional students, which means we didn't go straight from undergraduate on to medical school. But I received my degree in chemistry from Manchester University in northern Indiana and went on to work in industrial chemistry out in Washington State for a Mm -hmm. short time. And then through a series of career changes uh, and following my wife's career in pharmacy, she was one of the lucky ones like your wife to Mm -hmm. know exactly what she wanted and went straight through pharmacy school and and undergraduate to to be where she is now. Uh, We wound up in Albuquerque, New Mexico following her residency training. I had since finished my job up in, in Washington, followed her to Albuquerque and took a job with AmeriCorps Vista that landed me in the Health and Promotion and Disease Prevention Department at the Indian Health Service at Albuquerque area office. And that's really where my journey towards uh, public health and medicine began.
1: So what I think is so exciting about your story is, I know from having rubbed shoulders with a lot of people in Indian country, well, historically, there's been a sense that Native Americans were, as far as the public health community, just a group of people to be studied and not really partnered with, not really uh, uh, lived alongside of, if you will. And what I think is so interesting about your story is here you were impacted by Native Americans, by what you saw happening in Indian country, and it actually shaped your own career trajectory. Am I saying that too strongly?
2: No, I think that's that's a nail on the head. Uh, I can think back to a conversation with my mentor at any health service, who is Teresa Clay uh, of Navajo, and she is still a, an excellent contact of mine, someone I keep in contact with closely as I've been going through my, my medicine and public health training. But I had a conversation with her saying, you know, I really think I could see myself doing this public health thing for a career. And she took the time to nurture my strengths and connect me with physicians that were in the public health field as well. And, and said, you know, you should really look at the intersection of medicine and public health because I think you would do well there. And she's been in public health for nearly 20 years now. So I trusted her judgment, followed along with the mentors that she put in front of me, and ultimately it led me to where I am now.
1: Tremendous. So how long did you actually work uh, in Indian Health Service there in Albuquerque?
2: So I was there for one year. AmeriCorps VISTA is a 12-year contract to work full-time with uh, whatever organization you get placed with. It's through the the, U.S. government organization, similar to Peace Corps, but within the United States. Uh, I was placed with Southwest Youth Services for anyone in Albuquerque, they're an excellent organization. They get several VISTAs each year. Uh, Volunteers in Service to America is is the acronym. Mm -hmm. And they tagged me to Indian Health Service uh, to work in health promotion and disease prevention, which primarily consisted of training community partners and community health workers in tobacco cessation, in physical activity for both youth and for adults, and overall looking for ways to take things that are already part of uh, Indian culture and meld them with health principles and help people to find what has meaning to them and turn it into good, healthy decisions and and, and longer lives.
1: I love this perspective, you know, of not coming and imposing something on Indian country, but rather of drawing from the strengths of Indian country and and sharing that information back with people. I remember uh, many years ago I was working in Oklahoma. I was working with a diabetes center there, and we were working with a lot of Native American patients and tribal leaders from throughout the country. And I remember one woman coming from one of the southwestern tribes to our center And I had an opportunity to go back and speak to a group of people with her and actually a tribal center there. And as I was sharing some of the things that I had learned from other Native Americans about their culture and about their cultural values and sharing how these things really align with what uh, many people who are totally oblivious to Indian country now say are best practices, you know, the best uh, strategies for lifestyle change, I'm telling her about things that her ancestors did that she was unaware of because of her cousins and her uncles and her elders that I had had the privilege of of talking with. So it was really just saying, you know, here's the wisdom that's in your own community that I've had the privilege for your elders have shared with me and I'm sharing that back with you. And I kind of see what you were doing, you know, very much in that same light.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's a principle of a lot of the work that's undertaken by the Health Promotion Disease Prevention Department. I think it's something I learned well from Teresa, as well as another group she connected me with while I was in Albuquerque, known as Native Health Initiative. It's, it's led by uh, Dr. Anthony Flagg and his, his wife, Shannon. And they do several different trainings and programs in Indian country to bring uh, Native youth in contact with their culture and in contact with healthy practices and how to take those things and bring them back to their families and their reservation to be able to instill better health. Actually, I brought along a shirt from one of their programs that I have to help coach, running medicine. Okay. So it focused, I think, the idea of it started in 2016, right before I I started in AmeriCorps Vista. The whole idea behind it uh, was to take the spiritual practice of running and the spiritual practice of moving under your own power and bring that back into the culture and bring that back into the forefront of how – people find health for themselves and define health for themselves through movement. And that was such an inspirational thing for me, having been a collegiate athlete and having a totally different relationship with running, something of very hard times and numbers and distances and moving to where I took the watch off and just enjoyed the spiritual nature of being out, moving under my own power in the wind, whether it be with uh, the, the folks that I was coaching or running with, or just out alone in, in the wilderness of Albuquerque up on the Sandias. Uh, so it, it was a very transformative thing for me. And I watched it be an extremely transformative experience and a spiritual experience for, for hundreds uh, from the, uh, around the Albuquerque area.
1: Now, this is really exciting. Now, many of my friends and listeners that I've met over the years who have roots in the Southwest, they've talked about this deeply rooted tradition of running. I remember, one person saying it was part of their tradition and their tribe or their community to get up early in the morning and run. And it was, like you expressed, Michael, a very different approach maybe to running than someone who ran track in high school or college. Tell us a a little bit more about this spiritual connection. I mean, people hear spirituality and they hear running, and I think a lot of people from many contexts, those things just really do not connect. Can you, you you help pull those together for us?
2: Certainly. So it was a new concept for me as well, coming from the Midwest, having never had really any contact with this way of thinking and putting together exercise and spirituality or the intentionality of our actions with our spirit. To be able to to witness practitioners in that field, Get us to connect with ourselves. Things like the warm up in the beginning would would begin with everyone getting in a circle and the meaning of a circle in in that culture and being able to thank everyone at the end of the workout to walk walk around and thank each and every single person with intention for mm-hmm. being there uh, and then take a moment to sit down and stretch and use that as time to thank our bodies for carrying us and to give back to our bodies to keep our bodies healthy for carrying us through that run or that walk, depending on what you did that day. And uh, just the, I think it's the intention. uh, That's, that's the the key piece of being mindful of what you're doing, being uh, thankful for the people around you and and doing your best.
1: This is uh, exciting stuff. I know there's a lot more that you've got to share And we're going to be helping our listeners connect with some of these valuable principles, things that can make a difference in your life. As we come back for the next segment, we're going to be talking about a patient that Michael just saw and how if that individual had caught this vision for regular physical activity, they may have avoided a surgery. You don't want to miss that. We'll be back with more on the next segment of today's show. Stay tuned.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at aianl.org. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, aianl.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
3: The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and and one-half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station.
4: I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General, at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back to today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me, medical student Michael Stocker. Michael has been sharing about how Indian country changed his perspective on public health. And we're sharing with you things that have inspired Michael and uh, I believe can truly inspire you. We've been talking a bit, Michael, about the Native Health Initiative. Have I got the terminology right? Absolutely. And if someone, they're hearing about this for the first time, is there an easy way to learn about the Native Health Initiative?
2: Certainly. So they do have a Facebook. If if you're one that uses social media, you can also find their website at lovingservice.us. So those would probably be the easiest ways to to get in contact with their work.
1: lovingservice.us. Yes, sir. And that is the Native Health Initiative's website. Yes, sir. Okay. So what you were sharing with us before the break is we were talking about actually the spiritual experience of running, physical activity, bringing that really value that was held deeply throughout uh, many places of Indian country back to the very people whose elders had practiced it, maybe have, have lost the vision because of all the Western influences, the commercialization, the... European influences that have surrounded them. And as we were talking about just how important this was, I promised our listeners that we would talk about a real life case history of someone who had they had a greater vision for exercise may not have actually recently undergone a surgery. Uh, tell us about the surgery, particular surgery we were discussing off air.
2: Certainly. So just before we were able to meet, I, I came out of a colon resection. So that's the large intestine, the last thing that sees food before it comes out of your body. Uh, And this patient presented with abdominal pain after a few weeks of not being able to go to the bathroom. And essentially they were found to have a cancer, a primary cancer in their colon. Uh, They'd never had a colonoscopy before. They were nearly 60 years old. And that is a, a primary prevention for something like this, along with uh, some healthy living choices.
1: Okay. So basically what you're referring to, Michael, is current guidelines say once you have that 50th birthday, you should be having some kind of regular colon screening, correct? Absolutely. And at your point in medical school, have they talked much about what types of screenings would be appropriate?
2: So colonoscopies are our primary, our number one go-to prevention. In fact, uh, we've been discussing recently on my surgery rotation that we're finding colon cancer is becoming more prevalent in young populations. So Mm -hmm. there's been some discussion of bringing those guidelines earlier than 50. Certainly, if you have family members that have had colon cancers, getting checked earlier than 50 is a great idea that the guidelines say up to 10 years before that uh, malignancy or that cancer was found in your your relative, first-degree relative. That's uh, a lot of the great things you can do to keep something like this from from coming up on you out of the blue.
1: Yeah, colon cancer is it's really an inspiring story because what we understand about colon cancer in general is it starts with these growths called polyps, and the cancer typically forms in those polyps and then grows back into the Wall of the colon. So, if you catch these polyps early and remove them, even if maybe just the tip is turning cancerous, you could theoretically remove a cancer through the scope, couldn't you? When they're doing the colonoscopy,
2: absolutely, you could definitely uh, remove a polyp from uh, from a colonoscopy. So, uh, if I understand what you're getting at there, it's the matter that the scope itself could be a preventative measure beyond just finding the cancer, but also removing the early stages of that cancer.
1: Exactly. So. What's exciting about the procedure is I've had people over the years talk with me and say, you know, this doesn't sound very nice. It really doesn't sound very nice for someone to put a tube up your uh, exit passageway for your uh, digestive processes. You know, some people say I'm being overly cautious about how to uh, describe things on a show that we try to make appealing to all all ages. But the point is, uh, it doesn't sound really nice. I've just for screening reasons, gone through a couple of colonoscopies, uh, some ten years apart. Just following those guidelines, and uh, you know, some people think I'm crazy, but some of us doctors we want to we don't want to miss anything. So I've asked the the uh, specialists during the procedures that I've had is not to give me any sedation, and uh, even with that, I mean it's uncomfortable. And I'm not saying everyone should do that. The point I'm simply making is. It's to me, it's amazing that they can actually look in your intestinal tract and they can see the beginnings of cancer. They can address it uh, just by doing this every ten years. Uh, it's, it's really it's kind of mind boggling if you if you think about it. When you think of how many millions of people have died on our planet from colon cancer, you know, just over the course of our lifetimes.
2: Absolutely, and if I remember correctly, a lot of the work we did with the Indian Health Service included going to health fairs. And we always had a partnership with uh, colon cancer awareness groups that would bring a large inflatable colon for uh, potential patients to walk through and, and get an idea of what does everything look like inside and what exactly is going on in a colonoscopy. Because I think you bring up a great point that uh, a lot of folks have an aversion to healthcare care simply by not really understanding what's going on. And sometimes we in the health field have a really poor way of actually describing what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, and helping people understand. I think that's one of the great interfaces of medicine and public health is that communication side and making sure that people understand what we're doing with their body and how we're helping them in the long run by doing procedures and things along like the lines of uh, colonoscopy.
1: Now, we may not have sold anyone on getting a colonoscopy, Michael, if they've already decided they're not going to have one. But we do have other tests where we can check for blood in the stool. There's more advanced tests that we have today that can do that. That can be done on a yearly basis. So there's other options for folks, right?
2: Absolutely. Uh, And those, I believe, are addressing Cologuard and uh, other stool tests that look for markers in your stool that will alert us to uh, potential cancer growing in the cold.
1: So all of these things are what we call in the preventive medicine arena, secondary prevention. It's picking up on a disease early when it's at a very curable or treatable state typically is what our goal would be. So we call that secondary prevention. Primary prevention is preventing the condition from ever occurring in the first place. And that's where it brings us back to what the Native Health Initiative was advocating as far as running an activity, because many people are surprised to learn that one of the things that has been connected with lowered rates of colon cancer is physical activity. Now, that doesn't mean that an athlete couldn't get colon cancer and die from it. But one of the things that lowers your risk of colon cancer is physical activity. So when you're talking about having a spiritual experience with running or reconnecting with the creator or reconnecting with nature uh, or just being more in touch with your body, it's also doing something that could theoretically save you from a surgery. This individual who you were just sharing about, had they been very committed to exercise, had they had... Higher vitamin D levels. By the way, that's another risk factor for colon cancer. to have low vitamin D levels, risk factor for colon cancer in a number of the series. So there's certain things that we can do. Dietary factors. So all of these things. And you're there in Indian country as a VISTA. What's that acronym stand for again?
2: Volunteers in Service to
1: America. Okay. So you're a Volunteer in Service to America spending time at the Albuquerque office there of the uh, Indian Health Service. Any other messages you want to give us from that experience? Because I know you've got some other really practical life lessons that are going to resonate with my listeners.
2: Well, I think the Indian Health Service and the people that work in those offices are so dedicated to what they're doing, and what they're trying to bring to the communities, uh, at least in my experience. And I think perhaps the one lesson that stands out the most from my time working with my mentor, Teresa Clay, in that department, was how well she leveraged resources to get these messages out to different communities. Her territory ranged from Colorado down to West Texas, including Eastern Bands of Navajo and everything in New Mexico. That included 27 different areas uh, that had to be covered along with the, the Colorado downtown areas. And she was able to do that as one person in health promotion disease prevention. And that was primarily through partnerships, leveraging other groups that had the same goals or similar goals and making sure that everyone was moving the ball in the right direction, getting the information that needed to be given to people about their health and how to improve their health uh, to make sure it got there. So she taught me so much about leveraging what other strengths are and other groups strengths are and using those in conjunction with your own to get the mission done.
1: Uh, this is really interesting stuff. And I know your background is broader than just working with indigenous peoples in the Americas. You have quite a history of working with indigenous peoples across the ocean in Africa. We want to talk about that other part of your story as we come back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. But before we leave this segment, Michael, one more time, if folks were inspired by some of the material you shared about the Native Health Initiative, how would someone tap into some of their resources or connect with some of their experts?
2: Certainly. So I think you could go on Facebook and look for Native Health Initiative or Running Medicine. Either one would get you there. And then also lovingservice.us is Native Health Initiative's website. And I believe they have the Running Medicine website on its own. up. But I I think lovingservice.us could get you there.
1: Okay. So there's a lot of ways to get there. If you can remember Native Health Initiative or Running Medicine or lovingservice.us. Have I got it all down? Yes, sir. Okay, we are going to step away just briefly. We're going to be coming back with more on today's edition of the broadcast. Michael Stocker's not going away. I'm staying by. I encourage you to do the same. More right after this.
0: American Indian and Alaskan Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at o r g or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673.
3: The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, mums and dads, put a watch on your mouth. As you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to. Someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph when Blam! Ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit stoptextstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia hurd garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org.
2: When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You're back with the second half of today's edition of our show. Dr. David DeRose with Michael Stocker, or should I say Dr. to be Michael Stocker, third-year medical student, who's been sharing with us his journey. Really, I mean, you've had an amazing journey. You're getting experience. You've gotten experience in a lot of areas that many physicians, even who go into public health, don't have for many years. I definitely did not have that kind of experience going into medical school. You'd worked with Indian Health Service. You'd worked closely with Native partners throughout uh, the Albuquerque region there at uh, IHS. But your exposure to public health and your exposure to working with indigenous peoples did not start in the Americas. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Africa and where you were at in your life course, if you will, at that point.
2: Absolutely. So I had just finished my undergraduate degree and my father had been tapped. He was a a teacher by trade uh, when he came out of his undergraduate degree. And he was invited to go to Liberia, Africa with a group called Hope To. At the time, it was Hope To Liberia, a mission organization that was going to be holding a teacher's conference, essentially helping Liberian teachers learn how to put curriculum together and to be able to run a classroom effectively. So I was invited to come along with, with my dad to that trip and to teach public health concepts. Essentially, how do we teach kids in the classroom to have good hygiene, how to wash their hands properly and, and sort of things like that. It happened to be in 2014, the summer of 2014, right before the Ebola outbreak really became big hot world news. Uh, it was definitely going on when we got there. We fortunately didn't have a lot of exposure to it directly, but I will say I did not come prepared to answer Ebola questions when I got there, but I sure gave myself a crash course because every single day uh, Liberian teachers and Liberians would come in and say, Hey, what is this Ebola thing? How do we prepare for it? How do we prevent it? What is, it? Uh, so fortunately I'd had a, a great undergraduate training in, in virology. So i I'd, I'd been able to uh, educate myself quickly But it was my first crash course in in both missions as well as in uh, public health and communications.
1: Yeah, this is an exciting story. And, of of course, you know, Michael, uh, I wrote a book some years ago called Evading Ebola. And uh, this is not a sales pitch for the book because we've been uh, actually since the COVID-19 outbreak giving this book away free. Uh, I'll mention how any of our listeners could get a free copy if they're interested. But uh, Evading Ebola – I'm just looking at the uh, the publication date, 2014, came out in that very same context. I was doing the same thing as you were a little bit later, a few months later. I was saying, we got to look at this data and get some educational material out. There were great fears that Ebola was going to be setting up, perhaps, shop here in the U.S. What was so fascinating to me, and, of course, now we talk about this topic and people yawn, but before COVID-19, most Americans, most people in the world – had never heard of inapparent infection. They'd never heard of non, well, let's put it this way. They've never heard of someone having an illness but not being sick. What was so fascinating to me, and I don't know if you came up with this literature, uh, Michael, but the foundation for this book was that as I looked through the medical research literature, over a number of years, we found there was compelling evidence that many people in Africa had contracted Ebola, blood tests showed that they had been exposed to it, but they had no awareness that they had ever been sick. And that really just got my mind working, you know, saying, well, what was it about the immune systems of these people or their exposures that allowed them not to contract the illness? And so uh, the title of the book, Decrease Your Risk of Infection, I mean, that's especially focused on the kind of things you were teaching, you know, hygiene, public health, uh, frontline stuff, but fare far better if exposed. And uh, we were talking there about lifestyle factors that can uh, impact immunity. Of course, we couldn't connect all the dots, just like we had today with COVID-19. We can say we know certain things improve the immune system, but will it really help you have a less severe COVID-19 infection? Well, we're starting to get some answers But uh, I just find it a fascinating topic. When you were studying Ebola, did you walk away with other practical lessons that have transferred into other areas for you and in your work now as a medical student?
2: Well, I think an important piece from Ebola, and it actually I think translates well to what we see with COVID, and that's making sure that the communication lines are clear Mm. and that good public health information is available to people all over the affected areas and potentially affected areas. Uh, That was something that I I found to be particularly difficult in Ebola. Uh, I wasn't on the ground for very long uh, in Liberia during that time, once infection rates really started taking off and uh, we were, we were told to leave the country. Uh, But one piece that I found fascinating was that there was a lot of distrust with the message that was being put out about Ebola in Liberia. And that led to a lot of precautions not being taken by the general population. And while that distrust in government is something that's hard to overcome, uh, as health practitioners being able to tell one-on-one with a patient, here's what you can do to help yourself avoid this uh, infection and avoid this epidemic, I think that's a sacred relationship that, that we have to take a lot of pride in maintaining as public health professionals and also as physicians.
1: Yeah, I appreciate this so much, because if you're listening today from Indian country, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a community health worker, whether you uh, are a tribal elder, anybody that has any stature in the community, credibility, uh, what I hear Michael saying is leverage that credibility into actually teaching best practices when it comes to important public health messages. Because let's face it, in today's world, you can find on the Internet Basically, any message you want, and all the people seem to be equally credible. If you, you know, if you're a layperson, I mean, how do you know which doctor or which quote expert is telling you the truth? But when you have a personal relationship with someone, uh, that goes a long way. So, is is that the message you're trying to communicate, Michael, or am I taking it a little too far?
2: No, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I think something important, especially that we've learned in COVID, is is that things might change over the course of a day or a week as or a month as new research comes in. And that was certainly the case with Ebola, uh, as we learned more about that disease and how it affected the human body and how it transmitted from person to person. And I think we'll continue to learn more things about COVID and what we might teach today about how to avoid it might not be exactly what we're teaching in a year or two years or a decade from now when it's showing up on my board exams. Uh, but I, I think this is an important message that we have to digest the most relevant and most recent information, and distill it in a way that is useful for our patients and our community.
1: And here's the take home message, at least one of them that I come across from my perspective that I'd like our listeners to to really grab hold of. And it's this: you've heard Michael sharing what we know in the in the healthcare community, and that is that medicine is an evolving science. And because of that, well, it can be leveraged against us. People can say, oh, doctors don't know what they're talking about. And at the end of the day, you can say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I'm doing. I'm not going to change anything. But this is not following best practices. If you follow the best practices when it comes to health information, you're going to put yourself in the best position to live longer and better. And uh, yes, it's true. We don't always get everything right. Hindsight is twenty-twenty. 20 But uh, I'll tell you. There's a lot of people that are suffering, a lot of families that are suffering today because they didn't follow what best practices were, whether we talk about Ebola or whether we talk about COVID-19. Michael, you've got a friend, a close friend, who's also a medical student, physician, who's been very interested in this area of health communications and I know has been uh, actually putting together resources, at least a a resource for people who want to educate their kids about COVID-19. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. So his name's Adam Wallace. He's uh, actually about to be a medical student through one of the military programs. He's, uh, we met through a military experience. He's in the air force right now as a staff Sergeant and uh, as a SEER instructor, but he wrote a book called uh, the day my kids stayed home and that can be found for free on the internet. I, I can get you the link, but it's a little longer a site on air. Uh, but he, he wrote a book from the perspective of a house dog, a pet dog, and notice it's kids started staying home from school. And the whole point of it is to explain to kids why they're staying home from school and explain in a, an easy to digest way so that they can wrap their minds around it and understand this very uh, evolving and volatile situation that has been COVID and lockdowns and, and staying home from school or are we going to go to school or not uh, I think something that we tend to forget sometimes as clinicians in my own training, I've noticed is what's happening outside of the hospital. What's happening outside of how the disease affects your body, but how the situation affects our mental health and how our physical health follows our minds. Uh, and if that goes in a, a bad place, if we're not mentally or spiritually prepared for a situation, our physical health is going to suffer. So resources like this, the, the day that my kids stay home, uh, is a great way to help younger uh, younger populations get a good mental grasp of the situation that even adults are having trouble grasping.
1: That's great. So I've jotted the name of the book down. Tell me if I've got it right. The Day My Kids Stayed Home. Yes. And it's available free online as a PDF download. Yes, it is. Okay. So we will have that information. We will send it out to stations that, uh, that carry the show. You um, actually can also get it If you go to any formal description of the program on one of our podcast sites, you'll be able to see that. I will also include information about how you can get the free copy of my book. And uh, if you've got a good memory, it's pretty easy. If any of you know my website, it's Compass, like giving you direction, health. So we're directing you to health, Compass Health, and it's .net. And how do you remember that? It's because we're fishing for the best information for you. So CompassHealth.net, then slash Ebola. And you can download a free PDF copy of the book, Evading Ebola. So some infectious disease resources. And to tie the, the topic of Ebola and COVID-19 with our earlier discussion, one of the things I found that was so interesting that I included in the book, uh, the Ebola book, Michael, was uh, research on physical activity and how it improves the immune system. Uh, Dr. David Neiman and colleagues at Appalachian State University uh, looked at some 1,000 individuals during the winter cold and flu season, and they basically found the regular exercisers dramatically cut their risks of cold and flu symptoms. Didn't mean they didn't get an inapparent infection. You know, we've been hearing a lot about that, or an asymptomatic or a non-clinical infection, but they didn't get sick. They didn't get noticeably ill. And so if you want to keep your immune system optimally functioning, one of the things you want to do is you want to include regular physical activity. And that reminds us about LovingService.us because that's the website for what? Native Health Initiative. Native Health Initiative. So bringing us right back to Indian country and values that uh, First Nation peoples have valued throughout history. So Michael, our time is slipping away in this uh, particular segment. We've got another segment coming up but uh, before we step away, we've been talking about a lot of resources. Give us one more time some of the different ways people can connect with the different opportunities that are out there in the Southwest uh, from groups that you worked with, as well as this book about preventing COVID-19, or at least educating kids about it.
2: Absolutely. So if you're in the Southwest, be it uh, the New Mexico or surrounding state region, Running Medicine has several chapters outside of Albuquerque. So Highly suggest starting at Running Medicine Albuquerque on Facebook or going to LovingService.us. And on there should be a link to Running Medicine's standalone website, and that can help you find a chapter that might be near you if you want to come out for uh, one of their group meetings. Also, uh, LovingService.us has Native Health Initiatives, other programs. And the book by Adam Wallace, The Day My Kids Stayed Home, is a great resource for helping children and their parents understand the social situation around the COVID pandemic and why we're staying home from school in some areas.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. We got to step away. We will be back with one final segment on today's edition of the broadcast. You really don't want to miss it. A lot more great information up right after this.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
3: The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they shall often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions, they just take the orders. I got help so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org.
1: So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned.
3: Like what? Who?
1: Some of your friends,
2: teachers. It sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends?
3: So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age the physical and mental health effects, the poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say?
0: Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinkingsamsagovernor you You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You are back for the final segment of today's show with Dr. David DeRose and with Michael Stocker. We've been speaking about things that really... First Nations communities, whether they're in Africa or whether they're here in North America, can teach us and how there can be interchange of ideas and inspiration, and often the very things that inspire people of other cultures can be brought back into our own environment and make a difference for us. We've been talking, among other things, about the Native Health Initiative out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, Michael, just kind of an interesting sidelight before we talk more about NHI. Uh, Some of the folks who know me well, they realize that in addition to doing medical work, I've also uh, taught in college classrooms, uh, actually on both sides of the country. So for a while, I was in the state of Maine, teaching there in the community college system, teaching health professional students. And what I found so interesting is, actually, I was at the undergraduate level, but I found so many people coming into my classes. I was doing anatomy and physiology labs and a community college system they were people that had had other careers and they were basically going back to learn a second career or a third career and wanting to either give back to their community wanting to develop their skill set looking at perhaps a more marketable career and so i know the native health initiative has really had this vision in helping native youth and other people throughout indian country Uh, really find their way into healthcare careers. Tell us a little bit about what you learned about that part of their work.
2: Certainly. So Native Health Initiative has a large focus on connecting Native youth with future careers and connecting them with ways to lead those careers into giving back to their own communities. One of those programs is Healers of Tomorrow. They take high school students for an eight-month internship and expose them to different health professions and different career paths in health uh, professions that they may not have been exposed to otherwise. Uh, They also offer several internship programs in health justice and other health-related topics that allow these youth to get excellent experience and marketable experience for things like medical school or PA school or nursing school and take that experience back to their communities to lead to better health for their families.
1: So would this pretty much be limited to Native youth? Could someone in their 30s, 40s, did they have opportunity to go in, or was it pretty much designed for high school, college-aged students?
2: So I know that uh, Native Health Initiative is always evolving. I'm not directly uh, involved with them still, other than as a friend of the program. So I'm sure specific questions could be asked of them through their website. Their contact information is available on that lovingservice.us website. And I know that there are, for instance, people outside of the Southwest who want to get involved in this kind of work. They have a program called the Indigenous Health Leadership Institute. Mm -hmm. And when I took part in this, a four-day course, a group from Brown University was out and taking part in the program. So the furthest regions of the East Coast, they have programs to help people learn more about health in Native communities and how to integrate our Western practices of health with the uh, cultural practices that we will be operating within.
1: Okay, so some exciting stuff. So if you know of someone, if you're listening yourself... In uh, the Albuquerque area, especially, you want to take note of this, but no matter where you are, in the U.S. or even beyond, uh, we've got listeners in Canada, we've got listeners uh, from overseas, definitely lovingservice.us. I think that's been the most recurring website that we've been mentioning on the show today. Let's segue just a little bit and talk about a different aspect of Native Health Initiative's work there in Albuquerque And this has to do with people recapturing a vision for their own health. We've talked several times in today's show, Michael, about the value of physical activity. We talked about how research shows it can decrease your risk of killer diseases like colon cancer. Of course, we did mention heart attack and stroke and diabetes and how physical activity can impact all those, helping prevent or uh, delay or actually avoid a second experience with a heart attack or a stroke. But... What can someone do? They're getting up in years. They've never been an exerciser. Is there any hope for them? Did you catch any encouragement, any encouraging stories while you were there in Albuquerque?
2: Absolutely. I think part of this is a function of running medicine being a intergenerational program. Where we're bringing in not just youth, but people who are up in their years or parents of those youth. We had a saying called no parking lot parents. We really hope that if a parent brought their kid along, they would also join in and get a runner walk in with us and, and get a piece of the program. We saw so many individuals come in through that route, bringing a kid along. And, and one in particular, a gentleman who had struggles walking three miles but had the goal of running a 5K with his grandson that he brought along to the program. Uh, by the end of the summer that he, he first came to running medicine, he was able to complete that 5K. And I think he gave his grandchild a run for their money.
1: Wow, that is so great. I'll tell you, it's amazing to see how lives can change when people get a vision for doing something different. My wife, uh, who is also a physician, many of my listeners know, had the privilege of meeting a woman while she was in medical school by the name of Hulda Crooks. Hulda became quite famous. She was uh, one of the oldest people uh, to climb Mount Fuji in Japan and Mount Whitney in the U.S. As I recall, she was in her 90s. When she uh, uh, climbed those mountains, my wife went with her on one of those uh, trips to Mount Whitney. And uh, as I recall, the stories were that there were uh, camera crews going up with young guys who couldn't keep up with this woman in her 90s. But the interesting part of Hulda's story, as I understood it, was she was not an exerciser until she got up into her 60s. And uh, the message is, just like you've shared, it's never too late, is it, to adopt good, healthy lifestyle practices.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's a theme that we've mentioned several times that reducing your risk doesn't necessarily mean you won't run into disease somewhere along your lifespan, but taking action at any age to reduce that risk in a safe and healthy way is going to be for your benefit in the long term.
1: Michael, one of the things that I find uh, so both fascinating and exciting about your story is you really strike me as a person who's taken the skills that the creator has helped you develop and you've used them to make a difference in different settings. We heard about you just getting a college education, just. I mean, that's a big accomplishment in in many places, but you took that college education before you had a medical degree, a master's in public health, went to Africa, made a difference there, educating people in public health, uh, sharing the principles that Native Africans had developed, right? You were promoting the agenda that they had. You weren't imposing something on them. You then, some years later, were in Indian country, working alongside of people at the Indian Health Service and with the Native Health Initiative, learning from them and uh, giving back, sharing your talents. Here's the, the, the interesting angle on this. There's a lot of folks who listen to the show, Michael, some of whom may be like a person who approached me just this last week saying... You know, what can I do to give back? I, I don't seem to have that many talents or skills. Maybe I don't have that college degree. What have you learned about basically taking what you have and being willing to share it that's a lesson for anybody listening today?
2: That's an excellent question. I think the first time I really thought about that was my when that first time I went to Africa back in 2014. And I realized that that service, could be a lifestyle. I think I had done a lot of growing in undergrad, but just coming out of my college degree and, and going in, and serving in that, in, in that setting made me realize that I wanted to be useful wherever I was with whatever skills I had, I wanted to give to the community that I was placed in. And I've lived in several different cities in several different states, worked with all kinds of communities. And I think the best way to go out and use your talents is to start searching on the internet or talking to people that already do that work, which might come from a search on the internet to find find the kind of work you think you'd be good at. And then just start saying yes uh, to some of those opportunities. I know it can be really hard to take that first step, but find people talk to people just like our meeting on an airplane, you know, that, that con that concept of saying yes to just talking to somebody and opening up about yourself and asking them questions about what they do. I think if you can find a community partner or a community organization that you admire their work, Find an email address, a phone number, anything along those lines, or an event that they're holding. Go there and talk to somebody that have a, has a staff shirt on and find out how you can be involved. It's all about taking that, that first step, and it all gets easier from there.
1: This is such a great message. I hope you're taking note of what Michael's sharing because the message is today – but it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your experience. You have talents. You have abilities that can make a difference in your community and beyond. Find people that are making a difference. Partner with them. Rub shoulders with them. Michael, I know a lot of folks, they can hear that message, but you're right. Uh, to talk with a stranger, to reach out to an organization that you have no contact with, especially if you don't feel all that qualified Do you have any kind of final messages that would maybe just give someone a last bit of motivation that they might need to take that first step?
2: Absolutely. Just remember that you could be the difference that you felt in the the first person that inspired you uh, to do this service. You could be that person to inspire generations beyond you to do more service. So always see yourself as that next opportunity to spread the service mindset uh, onto onto the next generation.
1: Michael, thank you so much for uh, being willing during during your training years to uh, to share from your journey in a way that I think made a lot of this more practical for uh, the thousands of people that tune into this show.
2: Thank you, David,
1: and thank you to each one of you who've tuned in to the broadcast today. I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you, as always, the very best of health.
3: Native Voice One the Native American Radio Network.